Welcome to the Mycelium Network Podcast, a podcast for early stage web developers and the mentors, teachers, and communities that help them along the way. Hey, Dan, and welcome to the Mycelium Network Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It's a huge pleasure. Um, so, to start off with, uh, I released a podcast episode, I think it's two episodes ago, um, where I spoke to Ryan Stemmel, and you introduced me to Ryan. So thank you for that. And that was a really great conversation. He has such an interesting story of how he got to where he is today, like sailing around with a yacht <laughs> around the bottom of the US, getting trapped over there during COVID. And oh, that was such a fascinating thing to listen to. And he's such a nice person also. I really enjoyed mm. that conversation. So thank you mm. so much for that. And um, <clears throat> then it just makes sense to speak to you because now that I've dug into your story, wow, you do a lot of great things for early, especially new developers. And so can't wait to dig into that. But before we dig into that, just tell us about yourself, your background, how you came to do what you do and what gets you up in the morning. Sure. Yeah. So my story is not going to be as adventurous as, as Ryan's. I'll, I'll be honest with you. But um, I started out doing software in the 90s. Uh, my parents had a small insurance brokerage and they ended up having some tasks that were really f suited to software development. Um, one in particular was like a mail merge where they'd actually, you know, take they had to send certain notifications out legally and they were doing it via copying and pasting documents and manipulating them. And I was able to figure out a solution that was more um, automated. And after I did that, I toyed around with computers earlier than that. But after I did that, I was hooked on the ability of software to relieve human misery. Because if you've ever copy and paste a bunch of letters and and tried to like change just the address, but not, and you know maybe one other number and nothing else, it was pretty miserable. So that's kind of my first success in software. I've done a lot of things. I've been a CTO at a startup. I've been an engineering manager a couple of times, an individual contributor, technical trainer. Um, and then in 2019, I realized that engineering management wasn't the right fit for me. And I was looking for other options. And I ran across a company that was looking for developer relations help. And so I ended up making that shift. Um, I've since left that company, but I am currently still in developer relations at a company called Fusion Auth now. And, you know, one of the things I love about my job, and I think this is true in soft, of software in general, is that you always get to learn new things. In developer relations, I get to learn new things and then teach other people those new things. And that's a big part of uh, what gets me up in the morning. Nice. Yeah, I also had one of the clients that I've been working with for almost 12 years now. Um, I also last year, April-ish, I switched from being a IC individual contributor, front-end engineer, to being a community manager. And it's it's big open source projects, so there was a real need for that. And the, the, the thing that they really needed is like a community manager that had open source and technical experience. And that was hard to find. So I was there and it was like, would you be interested in that? And I was like, yeah, why not? Because it's something I tangentially always did. Um, so it was just, it was cool to switch to that. And the nice thing about that one is it also has a DevRel aspect to it, which is really cool. It's all about the open web. So you kind of have to talk about what's new on the web. And so it's really exciting. So it's fun to be able to do that. So I totally get where you're coming from. 
Um, I just wanted to touch on a project that you run that I discovered. I, I know you're kind of ramping it down, but it's still interesting, just the basic concepts around it. And I, what I'm referring to is the American Farms Shares and CSAs. Yeah. So this actually, again, came out of a need that I had. Um, I was doing some local food stuff. I took a couple of permaculture courses and was looking for CSAs in my um, area. In, in uh, I'm in Colorado in the United States, for all your listeners. And talked to a couple of friends. We put together a list. I just put like a table together and put it up on the website and started to see that it was helpful to other people. And at that point, I was... Um, you know, still writing software, and I ended up using a, a piece of software called CakePHP and turning it into an actual like directory. And that was a side project of mine for about ten years. As you mentioned, I'm, I'm ramping it down now. Um, and the reason I'm ramping it down is it's not just a software project. And newsflash to all the new developers out there: most projects aren't just software projects. This had a huge element of data entry. And reaching out to software, or not, excuse me, reaching out to farmers, typically around like Christmas time when they were getting ready to like, oh, let me take a step back. Sorry, I didn't really explain this. So farm shares or CSAs, which stands for community supported agriculture, is a way for a normal customer or consumer like me to go and support a farmer. And the issue with a lot of farmers' situations is that they need money early in the season in springtime or, um, you know, possibly even wintertime to, to buy, uh, seeds and to buy fertilizer and to hire help, but they don't have things to sell until summertime or fall conceivably. And so CSA, there are a lot of ways to deal with this problem, but you know, you can go get a bank loan. You can spend the savings that you have from the previous year. Um, but CSA is another way to do that where you basically pre-sell shares of, your summer crops or your fall crops to consumers who want to help support local agriculture. So that was a problem I was trying to solve. And there was a directory out there, uh, or I, there are a number of directories out there. I was building one that met my needs and the issue that I ran into, why I felt it was time to wrap it up is when it was never self-sustaining, it was always kind of a passion project on my side. And then two, the amount of effort to get, to do the outreach to all the farmers, even in Colorado, where there were like a hundred or some farms that I had on there, that was a big effort. And it's not just um, outreach, it's also like normalizing the data, right? So people have different sizes of shares, different types of shares. Um, every other week, some had situations where you had to volunteer on the farm, others were you know, just were paying money. And I thought, I, I talked about possibly building like a self-serve portal where the farmers could go in and update the information themselves. And I just never got around to it. Part of the issue is I accrued a lot of technical debt. Um, I think I was on an old version of cake PHP and it was super fun while it lasted because it let me try all these experiments that I ended up incorporating some of them into my real world work. But, um, you know, there's, one thing I'm learning as I grow older is there's a time for uh, projects to start and a time for them to thrive and a time for them to end. And not every project you start has to run for the rest of your life. Yeah, I 100% get that. Um, I have a project that I do on and off um, for the last 
I think I, I started it roughly at the beginning of the pandemic, somewhere over there. Um, and the idea behind that one was to find a way to collect, collect to connect <laughs> um, people like me with local businesses in your area. So instead of going to the big, you know, the big brand stores, you would first see if maybe there's a local small mom and pop shop or even just individual that um, can offer the product or service that you're looking for. And only after you've exhausted those avenues do you go to, oh, okay, I guess I have to go to one of the big, big brand stores. But it is a lot of work. Like there's, and, it, and like you said, there's a lot more work than writing the code. It's like, you know, now these people can create profiles so they can update their profiles. And I have to be worried about how, how do you store their data? Um, how secure is this? Can somebody potentially access somebody else's stuff? You have to worry about some, some person coming in and deciding to create a profile and put an, an avatar up that's not great. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you, how do you, you know, it's all those things. And so constantly I pick it up and then I drop it and I pick it up. So the site runs and every now and again I see there's some people poking around on it. But yeah, I'd love to build it out. But again, time and just so many things other than code. So I get it. But it's a very, very nice concept. I love the idea of the, the farm shares. It's so, it, it reminds me of um, relatively early-ish on in the pandemic where a lot of people would um, give restaurants money for when they open up again. So that like, pre-buy meals, uh, stuff like that, to help them sustain themselves through through the pandemic when they couldn't open up. Very, 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 very cool idea. So, yeah, it's unfortunate that it's spinning down. But as you said, there are others, so it's not like people will be left with no nowhere to go. Cool stuff. So, um, uh, in the notes I said another guest, but now that I've mentioned who the guest is, I might as well say Ryan mentioned uh, on the episode that he was part of the Boulder Ruby meetup. And so I've heard about, I used to be in the Ruby world way back in the day when I built another site that's also not around anymore um, called Open Source Release Feed. But, uh, and so I back then also in interacted with the Ruby community and I really enjoyed them. I thought it was a really nice community, but I've been out of that world for quite a while now. But you're also part of the Boulder Ruby meetup. So I have two questions. Like, First of all, what makes the Boulder Ruby meetup great? And then in general, what makes for a great meetup or meetup group? Yeah. So I joined the, the Boulder Ruby meetup in 2016. I was doing a startup and we picked Ruby uh, and Rails for our kind of foundation. And I was basically the only technical person on the team. And so I felt the need to like join community. And there was a, a Boulder uh, meetup and actually it's been running, I want to say since 06 or 07. It's very old. It's kind of one of the original ones. And um, that doesn't make it special necessarily. I think the biggest thing that makes it special is just continuity. And so we actually have, you know, um, I would say we have like 1300 members on the email on the meetup who've joined at one time or the other. Some of them might've been in your shoes, right? Where they used Ruby for a project. They were active members of the community or they showed up for one or two or 10 meetups and then they rolled off. We probably have, I'd say 30 or 50 people that are active-ish, right? Who might come 
at least once or twice a year. And then we have like a hardcore group of 12 or 15 folks that come regularly. And so when you see people who come regularly, um, you start to build friendships with them. And to me, that's the biggest thing about a meetup, which is like the, the blessing, the joy of a meetup as well as kind of the hard part is you have to put in the time to get the value. And if you just drop in, if, if any of your listeners just drop into a meetup once, they might learn something from the presentation, they might meet some interesting people, but the real value is seeing someone over and over again and watching their life evolve and watching their work life evolve. And from a perspective, you know, purely kind of mercenary career perspective, that's where you get the value, right? When people actually know you and think, oh, that guy, Dan, he knows something about, um, you know, technology X that he talked about or that he's mentioned to me on the, um, um, in a meetup. So I think what's special about the Boulder meetup is the longevity. And we even were meeting during the pandemic, right? Like we, like so many other meetups kind of made a focused effort to meet on zoom. We had some happy hours in those early days, um, where it was just people just like dealing with the shell shock of, of the lockdowns and, and what was happening to our world. And, um, then it's the people, right? So if you're interested in a meetup at all, like go there and give it your time. And it, uh, I think that that will be helpful. I have noticed that the Ruby meetup, or the Ruby community in general, apart from meetups, is a very friendly and welcoming community. I frankly wish there were more jobs in Ruby. I feel like that it's an ecosystem that deserves to grow and thrive. And, um, you know, it has its ups and downs and there's still plenty of jobs out there. Don't get me wrong. But as far as ecosystem size, there's no argument that Ruby is smaller than, say, Java or JavaScript, you know, 100%. So that's your answer about Boulder Ruby Meetup. Um, meetups in general have a lot of the same things, right? You want to build community. You want to be regular and consistent because the worst thing about a meetup is someone gets all excited. They run a meetup for three months and then they let their life gets busy and they get frustrated uh, or they just don't get the response they wanted. And then it stops being a, um, it stops being something that is, uh, that happens and then people don't show up. Right. It's like, an exercise class or something like that, right? If, if you don't have an exercise class every day or every, whatever the scheduled time is, like every week or every other day or whatever it is and show up every time, then the first couple of times people show up and it isn't actually happening, then it will just fall off the radar because we're all busy people. Yeah, I, there's a couple of things that was interesting. So the one thing I found interesting is the, the numbers. Um, because I do find myself sometimes getting a bit despondent when I look at the Discord server um, and I see the number of people on there, but then I see the interaction and there's a large gap between those two. Um, and I don't know why, why I still get despondent about it. It's probably just because I, um, I'm so passionate about it that I, I wish it, like, am I doing something wrong? Can I be doing more? Um, but it is, it's a fact that if you have 100 people only about five of them is going to be really active, maybe 10. Um, so if you want more activity, you need to grow the numbers. Um, that's kind of how it works. Because I think one of the things that became like a running joke with meetups, unfortunately, is this thing of 
yeah, you'll get 100 people saying they'll come, but only five of them will actually show up. Um, and I think it's it's a combination of factors. I think you touched on some of that, which is just people are busy and life happens. So on the day that you click the little button on the website, you were fully intending to go. But then your mother got sick, you got sick, your dog got hurt, something happened and you can't make it anymore. Or you had a really bad day and you just don't feel like being amongst people, even though that might be actually a good idea. But, you know, in the moment, you you don't see that. So I totally get that. And then Ruby, I think maybe Ruby might have a, a bit of a, a resurgence, maybe now that people have kind of decided that SPAs is a bad idea. <laughs> we should mm -hmm. be doing more stuff on the server and shipping this JavaScript to our end users on especially low-end devices. Um, so who knows? Maybe Ruby will have a bit of a resurgence. I always, I thoroughly enjoyed working with Rails back in the day. It's, yeah. So I can only imagine how nice this be now. I mean, if it was that good back then, I'm sure it's just gotten better. Yeah. I have two things to say about that. One is um, yeah. what we do and what we started to do since the pandemic, we did it a few times before, but uh, we actually have remote speakers come in and uh, we record everything and put it up on a website so that that way people, even if you can't, you have a bad day or you can't make it or what happens, you can still kind of engage with the content and get some value there. That's a low effort way to to provide value to folks. And then I totally hear you about the the numbers. And, you know, I always just console myself with the fact that like, there's like a 90, what, what's that rule? The 99, sorry, 99, one rule where, um, 90% of people will read something, 9% of people will comment something, and only 1% of people will actually create something. And I don't want to condemn anyone, right? I'm like, I'd like to create a lot of things, but there are definitely areas and communities where I'm in that 90%. We all need to meet folks where they are and ask what they can give. But um, I actually have a, a blog post by someone that they wrote a guest post for me that's coming out in May that um, is talking about uh, how to really foster meetups and how they're a great resource for jobs. And the, the long and short of it is it's not like a transactional thing. It's, it's much more just a sustained period of networking. And so go to the meetup expecting to meet interesting people and learn about interesting people and, I have never been disappointed if I, if that's my goal, right? Like don't go there expecting to get a job because that is uh, super transactional and super um, unlikely to happen unless you happen to have the skill set that someone needs at the exact time they need it. But you absolutely can foster relationships and learn things and meet people that will lead to work. And I understand if I was a new developer trying to get a foothold in the software development world, that would be cold comfort, right? That's not a very great message. Hey, in months, you might have some success if you do this. But I will say that your career is a long game. And that's something that I've discovered again and again is you absolutely need to optimize to find a job. But because you like to eat and I like to eat and we all like to have roofs over our head, but you also want to have put some effort into the long game because you're not just going to be a software developer for a year. You're going to be a software developer for decades. And I have worked with people that I met. In fact, my current job, I actually am working for, for someone that I met uh, or that, that I worked with tw over 20 years ago. 
and we just kept in touch and kind of floated around each other's orbit and ended up being that he had a need, his company had a need for what I could offer and it's turned out to be a great fit. Good advice. So <clears throat> we're going to slowly start working our toes into the deep ocean that you're building with stuff for new developers. <laughs> so the first little uh, taste of that that I'd like to talk about is you gave a talk um, where you talked about the three things you wish you knew as a new developer. If you could just like, I encourage everybody to go watch the whole talk, but if you can give like a brief overview of what are the three things and why did you think those three things specifically? Sure. So this is a talk I gave in 2019 and the three things were the power of saying no, someday you won't want to code, and that your network matters as much as merit. And all three of those things were something that, again, how do I put this? I think that we have this conception as developers, especially I did. I should speak for myself, but I've also seen with other new developers that it's really all about the code. And it's really all about, um, you know, how much code can I crank out? How much code is, you know, is it elegant? Is it correct? Is it fast? Is it beautiful? Is it easy to maintain? And, and that's important, right? I'm not going to say that that's not important, but the real honest truth is that software is a tool the same way that a hammer is a tool or a legal contract is a tool. And no one writes, no one, no one creates beautiful hammers or very few people create beautiful hammers for the purpose of creating hammers and very people, very, I would say, I would say no people create beautiful contracts for the purpose of creating contracts, right? It's all about the, the goal that they can help you achieve or help someone else achieve. And uh, those things I think those those three things were things that surprised me as I looked back over my career. At that point, I'd been a software developer for almost two decades and they were surprising to me. And they also were, they kind of played in that lens of, hey, it's not just about the code. It's there, there's other things that matter to software development and some of them matter very intensely. Agreed, agreed. I think it's important for people <clears throat> to be aware of that. Um, like. To write code is is a ton of fun. It's also super frustrating. Um, so you go between those two extremes, it feels. Uh, it's that thing where you have this immense sense of elation, but it's because of all the pain you had to go through to get to that point. <laughs> and I think, um, but when it comes to either building a business or working at a company, relationships and being able to work with people is sometimes even a larger part of it. Being able to succinctly express yourself and understand other people's requests from you and kind of being able to mirror it back to them in a way that puts you both on the same page. Like sometimes understanding the problem is harder than coding the problem. Um, I have a friend called Peter that was on the podcast last year um, that always says that like um, the coding is the easy part understanding what the problem is and how you're going to fix it is the hard part. Once you've figured all of that out, like he says, he says always, you just put your fingers on the keyboard and type for a while and things will be fine. <laughs> and it's very true. It's very true. 
I might push back on that a little bit. I think that like where what whether that makes sense depends on the arena you're in. And I come from a business app development arena, right? With a lot of web applications, um, I'm aware that there are other arenas like embedded software, or gaming software, or you know, really large distributed systems where there's some fundamentally hard things that you have to like think through. Um, you know, some of it is thinking through the problem. Some of it might be thinking through the implementation of the solution. But I think there's a ton of software out there, and the vast majority of developers I've ever interacted with work in the world where the harder part is figuring out the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So digging a little bit more into into this world. Um, so you talked. To, there's a post you wrote about um, not working alone. So there's a couple of angles to touch on this, and I don't want to talk too much about it. I, I want to let you talk about it. But it's interesting that last night I listened to a um, person I follow on YouTube. He calls himself the Primogen. Um, he's a dude that works at Netflix. Very interesting, entertaining person to watch. And um, they were reading through a blog post from somebody um, just talking about some other things, but the remote work aspect came up. And they also talked about the fact that a lot of that started happening around the pandemic, as we all know. Um, but he was pushing back that it's a net positive. Um, and he and then he specifically highlighted that for a new engineer joining a new company, he personally feels it's almost a net negative. Um, to be to join a new company as a new developer, maybe early in your career, to add more to it. And then kind of be alone. Um, you know, you have to, it's, it's not like there's somebody right there you can just walk over to and say, I'm struggling here. It's like you have to get somebody to join you on Zoom or you have to type in Slack and hope that they're there while you're typing. So that gave me some extra um, thinking around this. And yeah, I'd like to hear your thoughts around this. Yeah, I haven't seen that, that particular episode, but I think that remote work and working alone in the basement or in your room or wherever you are, uh, it, it depends on what your needs are. And if you are totally just executing and someone's given you all the requirements for your code and you can just kind of run through them and, again, let put your fingers to the keyboard, then being alone and being kind of in a silent space is, is a great thing. The problem with that for people who are thinking about self-development as a career is if you're in that situation where you're handed requirements and just churn out code, right? You get something that's thrown over the wall, you throw something back over the wall, then you are competing against a very, very big market of people, anybody who has an internet connection. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to compete on my skill or my um, cost with someone who's in a totally different environment. Um, I live in the US, which is a fairly expensive place to live. I think I'm a good software developer, but am I worth a hundred times somebody else, right? In the Ukraine or in um, the Philippines or, or, or what have you, or in India. Um, and so if you accept that you don't want to just be someone who has things thrown over the wall to you, then you have to start communicating. Um, so, that said, I think that for new devs, there is, and this is something that I've experienced myself, there's so much implicit knowledge. 
And there's implicit knowledge at a couple different levels, right? There's implicit knowledge of just a, a code base, right? That exists because every code base is weird in its own way. Um, and that's uh, going to be implicit knowledge that both a senior dev and a new dev walking in the same company run into, right? Like they'll be like, oh, how do I, how does it even get deployed? Or how do I find this, this thing that I, I see referenced here, but I don't understand why it's, why it's done that way. And then there's implicit knowledge of like the software stack and like the tooling and best practices. And that is something that a senior dev is going to come in and have some knowledge of, but a new dev is not. I mean, I've seen it to the point where it's even like someone having a hard time like navigating the command line. And there are things that are so, that are much easier to pick up when you're, when you're in the same office, you can like, like you said, you can walk over and ask someone a question. Um, it's, even less that it's actually seeing if they're busy because that actually removes an obstacle for you to walk over. Like if you see your senior dev and he's, you know, walking over to the coffee machine and, and getting ready to make a piece of co a cup of coffee, it's very easy for you to have that context and see, Oh, I can go ask him or her, um, a question. Whereas you don't have that in a, in a remote environment. Um, but I will take a step back and say the reason for this post, which was pre-pandemic, I believe, um, was actually not the remote versus in-office um, split. It was actually there are people out there that I have met who are basically like the sole developer for their operation, right? They're, they're working for a small company or something like that, and they come on and the problem with that is that you're this big fish in this small pond and you're making a lot of decisions, but especially new in your career, it's really hard for you to know how to make the right decisions. And you don't have anybody that you can bounce ideas off of. Maybe you have somebody else in the company, but nobody else is technical. And so that what, that's what the post was really warning people about. That's a very good point. Yeah. Um, I've been on a project that's, if you look at it from the outside, you would think, oh, there's like a big team of people, like all the things, program managers and product managers and project managers and designers. And, and there's probably like so many people just front-end engineers. I was like, I was literally the only front-end engineer for this entire project. <laughs> and um, that happens all the time. And it is hard because now... If you are talking to a product owner or you are talking to no shade or lemonade, but a back-end engineer, and you're trying to justify something that you want to do on the front end, it's hard if you're the only person that is has that domain knowledge and you're trying to convince somebody else that this is a good thing to do or the right thing to do or whatever. If you have another front-end engineer with you, at least the two of you can talk together and both can come to people and say, we have talked about this and we feel that this is something that's missing. It's a little bit more convincing just merely because there's two of you instead of one. And it's, and it's just nice to be able to bounce things off somebody else that has the same knowledge or it's in the same space as you. I think um, being able to work with a senior dev that is compassionate um, is immensely... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Valuable to a to a junior uh, junior dev. Um, that's in the same domain as you. Just to be able to like get acknowledgement for the things that you do, and getting 
just being able to see what they do. You learn so much from just watching sometimes and being asked, like, review my pull request. Because now you're, you might feel like, but I'm not qualified. It's not about that. It's about, this is a learning opportunity. Like, this person is trusting you to look at their work. Ask questions if you're unsure. Like, if you think, this looks a little weird, ask, why is it done like this? Because then they can tell you, oh, because you might not know about X, Y, Z, you know, I think it's, it's a learning opportunity. So an open source can play a role here, but again, it, it's finding the right projects with the right people mm -hmm. so that it's a positive experience and not a negative one. Yeah. And I would say for that pull request example, like maybe nine times out of 10, it's the information flowing from the senior dev to the junior dev, but you know, I've met web smart junior devs who say, Oh, why do you do it that way? And you're like, Oh, that's a good point. We shouldn't do it that way. Here's this other tool or this other paradigm that we should use. So, um, you know, just because you're newer, this shouldn't even need to be said, right? Like, but I don't want to like say it because it's worth making it super explicit. Just because you're newer doesn't mean that you're dumber. Like you are a, a, an intelligent, smart person. Otherwise you wouldn't be a, a software engineer. Not that those are the only intelligent smart people in the world. There are plenty of intelligent smart people, but you got to be, to be a qualified software engineer to get hired. You have met the qualifications and you're a smart person. And again, I love that, that calling out the compassionate senior dev, because they're definitely senior devs that have egos that squash on squash people, which, you know, is a pretty horrible place to be as a junior dev or frankly, any other kind of dev. But um, you have value to bring to the conversation. And in some ways, fresh eyes is actually super valuable because you only get to be new once. And so if you ask questions about a code base that you're new to, you're going to to see things or you're going to run into friction that that someone who's been in that code base for a year just won't even notice because they'll have like worked around it, right? They might have their own script or their own CLI trick or their own mental model that causes them to ignore that thing. And, and you can bring in that perspective and say, well, actually, this really, really frustrated me. And I could imagine it frustrating other people too. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of value in only that last little bit, just identifying the things that, that you found had way too much friction, way more friction than it needs to have. Um, I think that's one of the things that a couple of open source projects that I've been involved in call out specifically, and I love it when they do that. It's like, when you're setting this up and you're reading through our readme, if it's a pain, please tell us, because we want to know that, because you know a lot of these projects really need help. and if they can reduce friction, more people will help. And if they don't know, because you've been doing it forever, you maybe set this up three years ago and never thought about it again, um, then you don't know what you don't know. So I think, I think it, that in meditation, they have this idea of a beginner's mind and always having a beginner's mind. And I think that that is good. That's a good approach just to, to keep that in mind when, when somebody brings new ideas. Don't just you know, be open to it. Be open to the idea that somebody else can have a better idea than you, even though you have seniority. I'm putting in air quotes. So digging into, now we're fully into the pond. Um, you have a number of resources around letters to a new developer. Um, it's, we're gonna dig in all the different facets you have, but just to get us going, where did this come from? And 
what is your hopes with this project? And then maybe if you want to dream a little bit, how have your goals changed and what are, where, are you, where is this goal going? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, to take a step back, I wrote a book, a technical ebook in, I want to say it was 2013, 2012, around a technology called Cordova, which basically lets you um, build native applications using JavaScript. And it was called PhoneGap at the time, I think. But I, I wrote this ebook it was 60 pages or 40 pages and it was a lot of effort a lot of work and i made a little bit of money off it and then maybe <laughs> two months after i published the book my company stopped using uh, cordova and i never touched it again right and didn't touch the book didn't touch the technology and so i kind of swore to myself that the next book i was going to write was going to be something that was more evergreen and so fast forward six or seven years, I um, started to think about like have space in my life for a book. And if anyone on your in your audience is thinking about writing a book, I always say the first thing you should do, and this is mostly for nonfiction technical books. I don't, I don't really know how to write a novel or a memoir or anything like that. But a nonfiction technical book, technical book, I say, first thing you should do is write 10 titles for blog posts. And if you can't come up with 10 titles for a blog posts about this topic, then you shouldn't write the book. Then write the 10 blog posts. <laughs> and if you can't write the 10 blog posts, you shouldn't write the book. And then after you've written those, then maybe you could start thinking about writing the book because that will test your um, desire and your knowledge. And lots of times when I get to a topic and I start writing something about it, then that leads to other things that I want to like investigate and learn more Sometimes when I start to write about something, I can't finish the blog post. And so each of those are signals from your body or your brain saying, hey, you know, in the first case, dig in further. This is really interesting. This is really something that, that resonates with you. In the latter, hey, maybe this isn't a good fit. So that's the context when I started writing this blog is I kind of had in the back of my mind, oh, I'd like to write a book. I'm not sure. Let me, let me start this out. I also, at that point, was an engineering manager for a consulting company and had hired um, some new developers, was mentoring some developers. And I just saw how much, again, we talked about that implicit knowledge. I, I saw how much implicit knowledge there was around the bigger craft of software that, that was kind of being ignored or wasn't really being, um, the, the newer, de newer devs didn't have that. And so that's when I started writing this, this, this blog. And um, as far as kind of the goals, or actually, do you want to, do you have any questions about that, that piece or do you want me to step on the goals? No, I think it's good. Um, keep going. Okay, great. Cool. Um, yeah, so the goals definitely evolve over time. At the beginning, I was actually publishing weekly. Um, I tried doing some excerpting of things, kind of have via conversation. Um, I backed it down after a while to every other week. And lately, I have done a lot less of my personal writing. I feel like I've kind of plumbed my advice uh, that I have for a couple of reasons. One is I, I'm not an engineering manager. I don't interact with new devs in that way anymore. Like I still interact with devs as a DevRel, but it's not helping people like launch their career as much. It's much more about like, hey, here's a tool that you can use. Um, 
So there's that piece. And then also, I think that every bit of advice you give is something that it comes from where you are. And I definitely have a certain career history, right? Uh, and a certain place where, where uh, I am. And, you know, that is both kind of who I am, right? Like white male in the USA um, and also kind of where I've taken my career, which is mostly small companies. And so one thing that I'm really excited about is I don't have a huge platform. I have a small, a smallish platform, a couple hundred email subscribers. And, you know, I don't even know the stats on the number of visits, but it's not huge. But I've actually been able to ask people that I admire or that I think have interesting voices to do a guest post. And that serves two purposes, right? It highlights them, which is really great. And then also it brings that other perspective, right? Like I had a great uh, guest post from someone who worked at a company called Oracle. You might have heard of them or kind of a big software company. And he had a, a long piece of uh, a long post that was all about how to interact with a job fair. And I would never in a million years be able to write that blog post because I I've probably been to one job fair in my life. And I certainly wasn't the hiring manager at that job fair, but he had some really great advice for new devs that I think was great to share with them. So that's kind of where I see things going um, is doing more and more of that. I, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about projects winding down. I may wind this one down. I'm kind of feeling like it feels like five years is a good amount of time for it. Um, I wouldn't shut it down. I'd probably leave it up for a while. Uh, it kind of does depend on how much energy I have and, and how easy it is to recruit new folks to write guest posts for it. Um, again, speaking of passion projects, like I don't think I've made any real money from it. I've had some people donate some things and, and whatnot, but it, I have absolutely gotten satisfaction from it, from it. I've had multiple people reach out to me and say, Hey, I found your website. It was super helpful to me. And I, they've done this over, you know, different email and LinkedIn and even in person. So that's why I do it and why I continue to do it. Um, but I do feel like, um, I don't know. I, I could see it coming to an end in the next year or two. Hmm. So <clears throat> even, even with a constant interest from people who want to guest post on the site, is, do you think that it might take too much time just to support all of that? I, I, we'll see. I mean, I think the guest posts, uh, to be honest with you, most of them have been outreach. So I will reach out to someone and say, hey, mm. you have an interesting post. Uh, to be frank, the, the, the people who reach out to me and say I want a guest post are usually people who are link builders and just want just see my domain score and want the link back. It's not super useful to folks. Um, but uh, I'm leaving it open. Like I really enjoy the other viewpoints and I really enjoy, um, you know, just watching or hearing people um, who've, who've had value from it. So I'm not, this is not a surprise announcement that I'm committing to like shutting it down. <laughs> but um, I think that, and, and like I said, even if I was to shut it down tomorrow, I would, 
pay for it to be up for a couple of years and and uh there's value in in um you know part of the reason i set it up is because i want it to be timeless and i think that the advice might never work alone is one that you mentioned but there's other you know a couple hundred other articles and my belief is that they will still be as valuable at 10 years from now as as they are today yeah yeah no no that's why i asked the question because i would love for this to be around I don't know, forever. <laughs> Just yeah. because it, it's not it's not like, you know, writing about a specific feature of JavaScript or something that could completely change and not even be a part of the language anymore ten years from now. It's it's advice just about being somebody in a job, working, trying to do the right thing, trying to do good work, trying to find work. And I think the core of this will never really change that much that it this stuff is irrelevant. So It'd be lovely to find a way to keep it up. <laughs> oh, um, I mean, I'll, I'll put it on an S3 bucket and like pay for the domain name for 10 years before I'd let it go. Because by the way, I, I have a lot of blood, sweat and tears in it too, right? So I don't have any yeah. desire to have it go away. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So the other thing is it, it's also a book. Um, so how is the book different from the website? Other than, sure. of course, a book is a book, so it's a one-time like point in time, um, whereas a website evolves over time. So other than that difference, what what is the differences between the two? Sure. So I think that the book is, is obviously is the modality of the book, right? Where it's like something that you can hold and put it by your bedside table and not have to read on a screen. Um, and that's one of the, one of the big differences. Uh, there's a content difference as well. So the book is sourced from the website, but I wrote about 10% of new articles for the book. And then every article that I wrote, I reviewed and edited and, and copy edited and in some cases expanded, in some cases um, just shifted things around. And so it's new content as well. And then it's also organized thematically. So actually I have a copy of the book right here and it's, um, there's, you know, chapter one is your first month. Another chapter is questions, writing, tools to learn, practices, understanding the business. So it's really kind of grouped in a way that hopefully makes it easier to consume. And because it's a book, you can kind of dog air the pages, you can flip around, um, you can lend it to a friend in a way that a website is tougher to do. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, I love that. It's, it, there's very few. I read an article the other day about um, it's somebody that runs, like back in the day, we used to call this thing called Webzins. Mm -hmm. I don't know what, how to pronounce it. But um, like I, I remember one of the first ones I read was the Mozilla's the Mozilla zine or zen or however you pronounce it. And um, there's a company or a company like a non-profit essentially that, that publishes this magazine about the printing industry. And they have actually a printed version of the magazine that they release every quarter. Awesome. And I was like, that is so amazing. And if you look at what the printed one looks like, it, you can see why it's something special. Like they really put a lot of effort into it into making sure that it's like typeset and you know they use like some of the pages are literally printed with an old typesetting machine it's wow. amazing mind-blowing and it's it's really cool so i can understand like just that is, is is enough reason but the the extra thing you mentioned about it being thematic throughout the book that is super cool i love that and 
we're going to touch on another another version you can you can um, consume the the material of um, this great project. Um, and what I love about that is multimodal, and we're gonna we're gonna touch on that in a second um, as part of this this question. Because the other thing that I found is that there's a podcast version, which is these like little bite size, almost like five minutes or less episodes, and I I love that because, I mean, for good or bad. People do like short little bites that they can just quickly, like five minutes, oh, that was so useful, and then go on. People don't always have the time to you know, listen to an hour-long conversation or something. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of things don't need an hour-long conversation, right? Um, so I'd like you to, to talk a little bit more about that, but then as part of that, maybe just your general thoughts on making content available in different modals. Like I call it multimodal. I don't know if that's actually a thing, but... Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I kind of stumbled into this. My wife actually has a podcast, and I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. And the platform I'm using actually has like a kind of a one click podcast maker. And so that's kind of why I started to do that. And um, the whole premise of Letters to New Developer is that it's small bite sized things, which I think does play very well with, with being a podcast. Um, so I wouldn't say like, I actually don't have stats on this. I wouldn't say I, I've seen a few subscribers, but it's not been super successful, but in taking a step back as a developer educator, which is my main job. Um, I, if you <laughs> speaking of being in the same room with somebody, right. And the benefits of it, like if you watch somebody try to do something or try to learn something, um, no matter how experienced you are as a dev, you're going to see a different way of doing it. And so I think that that is where this multimodal, you know, content delivery makes a lot of sense, especially we can automate a lot of it. Um, because it is effort to put out a podcast. It is effort to put out a video. I mean, you know, right. <laughs> but, um, it's effort to put out a video. It's, um, and not just the one-time effort, but stuff gets out of date. Uh, especially when you talk about technology and we've definitely at my day job have removed videos that were very popular videos, but they were, the, the product had shifted. And so the video was actually degrading the developer experience because it was incorrect. So in short, I think you want to reach people where they are. You want to try to automate the creation of that content as much as possible to lower, not just the initial cost, but the ongoing maintenance costs. But the trade-off is that you do have wider reach. And, um, you know, I don't know if the whole idea of learning types has been discredited. Um, I don't keep on up on that kind of educational like um, research, but I've certainly seen, you know, an example is I think that younger folks are much more likely, at least this was probably five or 10 years ago, they're much more likely to reach for YouTube to learn something than they were to reach for Google or to read a blog about something or to read a book. I think now actually I've seen some younger folks even go to TikTok instead of YouTube. Um, and so there's a price to pay, but you, you got to be in that game if you want to reach folks. Yeah, that is, that is something I'm struggling with right now. Um, but that's, that's a whole other conversation about this it's different platforms and specifically some platforms. But 
Um, yeah, I think that is definitely the case. And I, I also don't know from a neuroscience perspective if anybody's discredited, but from a self-reporting um, perspective, I definitely run into people who are like, I can't, don't give me docs. Like, I don't care how well they're written. I'm not going to read all of it. If you can give that to me as a video, brilliant. I'll take that any day. And completely the opposite. Just the other day, I heard about somebody that much prefers a book, like real, like I want it in my hands book. Like, for example, um, the folks at A Book Apart. So the folks that also do, um, that has event apart, but I think that's come to an end. But they also have a list apart. That's where it all started with that blog about all the front end stuff. Um, they sell their books. You can buy the digital book. You can put it in your Kindle or just read it as a PDF. But you can buy the book book. And um, yeah, there's quite a couple of people that I've like, sure, you can highlight with pretty much any tool these days on, on your machine. Like you can make all kinds of light, um, highlights and note cards, and but they want the book with the highlighter in their hand and do the highlighting. That's just how they learn the best. So whether neuroscience has disproved it, people definitely prefer and like to have options when it comes to how they, how they consume material. So um, stepping away a little bit from the letters to a new dev, by the way, I love the name, um, to something related but different. Um, how should new developers approach the process of finding work? Like what are some of the key aspects to keep in mind when you're sending out your resume? Maybe touch a little bit also on the interview itself. Yeah, yeah. So, and I, and I will say that it's been many years since I was a new developer. So I want to, again, in terms of setting advice in the context of understanding that advice comes from someone who's been at a certain place at a certain time, I just want to, you know, make sure I kind of call that out. So, um, but from the interviews I've done and the, the successful new devs that I've seen, I think the important thing is that you need to find a way to stand out. And I will tell you one way that doesn't stand out is to go to a bunch of LinkedIn job listings and click submit resume, you know, a hundred times in a day. That's going to just go to some database and it is because it's a numbers game, it's possible that you might at one point get call, get a call back, but the effort is so low that everyone else is doing it. So there are many ways to stand out. Um, I think open source is a phenomenal way. Oh, and by the way, I should stand back and say, every one of these ways to stand out is going to cost you something, time or money, um, because that's if, if it was free and easy, then everyone would do it and it wouldn't make you stand out. So um, the unfortunate thing is right now, to get a job as a new dev, I think you do need to make an investment of your time or your money to to, to, to be able to stand out. And um, so I started to mention open source is one option. I think that uh, it's a great one because it shows you um, it, it, sh it, it shows rather than tells how you integrate with the team, how you work in the tooling that is uh, possibly in use by your future employer. Um, it shows how you communicate. So that's awesome. Um, and my advice for open source is I would not pick a tier one project. I wouldn't pick a React or a Rails. I would pick a tier two project. And we, you talk, you mentioned that earlier that um, there's a lot of projects out there that are 
desperate for hands, um, they don't necessarily need just code. They, I'm sure, would appreciate code, but they also need all these other things that go into making a successful project. And I think the tier two projects, um, you know, device is one that I would consider if you're in the Rails world or maybe um, I'm not as in the React world as I should be, but like, you know, a, a library that is built on top of React would be a great example of a tier two one that's still popular. It's still your employer might know who they are, um, but that would not, um, you'll have an easier time getting contributions in because there's just a, a smaller pool of people, a smaller pool of people who are contributing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's one way. Um, another option is to really do some deep research on 10 companies instead of applying to a million companies and get to know who they are in the community, build something with their tooling or build something that uses software that they may use. Right. Um, and ways you can find that out are there's, there are sites out there that tell you what companies what stacks companies use. Um, and then, you know, if you find out the interests of the hiring manager and of the other team members and you build a relationship with them, possibly interacting with them on Twitter or Mastodon or other social media or in open source projects they contribute to, or even just like commenting on their blog or responding to their newsletter, like, Again, that's a way that it takes time and effort to do, but you're going to learn a lot more about the company and you're going to be able to, to stand out, right? Like join their community if they have a, a dev community or something like that and, and participate in it. Um, so those are kind of a couple of ways to stand out. Um, around the interview, I think you need to prep for an interview. And the unfortunate thing is that like every interview process I've ever been in is different. So get as much forewarning as you can from the recruiter or the person that you're interacting with so that they can, um, you know, telegraph that, oh, this is going to be a, a real leak code type of interview, or this is really going to be like a behavioral interview or something like that. They may or may not tell you, but it sure doesn't hurt to ask. And then um, the other thing I would say about interviews is it's a two-way street and you will never, ever, ever be treated better by a company than when they're trying to woo you to, to join. Like if they treat you like crap during the interview, then it's it's not going to get better once you're a team member because you have the most options when you are interviewing. Um, and last, I would say, and this is a tough thing, and I feel for every new dev out there, but prepare for a mental slog. This is going to be a, a long time. I've actually talked to new devs who kind of stayed in. They were moving from a different industry, and they actually stayed in that industry, kept their job, and just looked for jobs um, in, in off hours. And that's because you need to maintain the mental and emotional resources as well as financial resources to succeed in something that might be a six month, a 12 month experience. And so don't quit your job because you finished the boot camp and you know, you're like, oh, I'm going to get a job in, in a month. Right. Like uh, that's just not the world we're in for new devs. And I don't know that it's been that way for many years. Yeah, that's all very good advice. Um, yeah, that last one is also very important. Like, you know, take care of yourself and your family first. And then, um, and I mean, you know, I say that, but at the same time, I do understand that sometimes you are transitioning to, to tech or something 
and it's part of taking care of yourself. Uh, you might be deeply unhappy in the job you currently have, but I can almost guarantee you that you'll be much more unhappy if you quit your job and you don't find a job. Um, so, yeah, I, I've, I'll, you know, cards on the table. I've made that mistake. It worked out for me, but I was lucky. <laughs> uh, I was in a job that I really disliked. Um, I mean, I'll go as far as I hated. And it was very toxic and I needed to get out. I had a family, I had kids, but I was like, I cannot do this anymore. And I applied for the job. I didn't have it yet, but I've had a really good feeling about it. And I quit before I got the other job. I'm not recommending it. For me, it worked out, but I think err on the side of caution here. <laughs> and um, give yourself some time. Give yourself some time. It'll, it'll happen when it's time to happen. Yeah. Cool. So uh, in another blog post, because you write many blog posts, <laughs> which I love, um, you shared like a whole number, and I'll, I'll link to this, of course, a number of books and other resources uh, for software developers. But um, I've read a bunch of books over my time um, as a human, but also as a programmer. Um, and there was three books in that list that I've come across multiple times. So I, I just want your thoughts on what about those three specific books. And the three is The Pragmatic Programmer, Don't Make Me Think, and The Mythical Man Month. If you could pick like one thing that you took away from those books that made you put it on the list, what would that be? One thing from each book? Yes. Okay, cool. Yeah. Because, um, yeah, because, you know, I, I definitely can do one thing from each book because I couldn't give you one thing from all the books because that's, they're, they're three very different books. Um, yes. <laughs> so I would say um, Pragmatic Programmer was one that I discovered really early in my career and I have not read the, I know they re-released the 20th anniversary edition last couple of years. I haven't had a chance to reread that, but to me it was the first book that I read that was really about the craft of programming and it really drove home to me like that just like a lawyer should always be reading up on case law and a doctor should always be reading medical journals. Like being a programmer is something that is a craft that you can continue to improve over time, whether that's by learning new tools, new technologies, new techniques. Um, it's not something that you can kind of set and forget if you want to be as successful as you can be. Um, as far as don't make me think, this is a great book. It's very short, a lot of pictures. If, if you had to pick one that was like an easy read, uh, actually, I would probably say for a new dev, don't make me think would be the one of those three that I would probably recommend the most because it's all about user empathy. And, it's, and <laughs> as developers, we're kind of wizards. And if you've ever had a, a family member or a friend who wasn't technical and you come in and you fix their router or you like create a form for them or, um, you know, solve their, their password issue, right? They're frustrated with like, getting a password on, on, on an account, um, you'll realize that like you have kind of superpowers in some ways and, um, don't make me think it's all about how you can put yourself in the mindset of a normal user to use your superpowers for good, not, not for evil, right. Or maybe evil is too strong a word, use your superpowers for good or to make their life better rather than to confuse them or, or frustrate them. 
Um, the third one, Mythical Man Month, is a great book. It's very historical. I think the the bulk of it focuses on a software project from the 60s or 70s, like the initial like operating system build out from um, the IBM team. So you might say as new dev, geez, what the heck is that? <laughs> How is that going to be useful to me? But um, there's a lot of lessons that were pulled out of there that I think are still true. And one that jumps to my mind is um, adding more people to a project that's late will make it later. And the reason for that is that the intrinsic difficulty of programming is not always the code, right? This goes back to our very first, you know, bit of conversation. It's not always the code. It's actually in some, in some respects, it's the communication to determine what we want the code to actually do. And so if you're running late and deadlines are being missed, it's a natural tendency to say, well, more people will be able to help out because they'll be able to write more code, but you have to bring those people up to speed. You have to determine what they're going to be building. You have to make sure it's building the right thing and not, not the wrong thing. So those are kind of my takeaways from those three books. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I have the new um, edition of the pragmatic programmer and yeah, brilliant. It's like a must read. And I love the fact that you used the word craft when you talked about that part. Because I do think like programming is an art and a craft. It's not just uh, it's not just a purely academical exer- academic exercise. Um, there's creativity here, um, and it doesn't. When people talk about creative code, people might think you're making pictures or audio or something. No, like even if you're creating like a backend thing, like thinking about that problem and being able to move it into a relational database structure and architecture that takes. Creativity, that's a craft to do. So I love that you use those words. And yeah, uh, Don't Make Me Think is a wonderful book. I read it once a year um, just because it's so good and you have to re-remind yourself of these of the things in there. So yeah, these are all, all three of them are awesome, awesome titles that I highly recommend people read. You mentioned that you work for Fusion Auth. I didn't know about them until I, I learned about you and I've looked at them a little bit and... Um, so almost every developer, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but almost every developer, at some point, you'll build something that needs authentication. Um, I know with uh, before we started recording, I talked about a project, or well, maybe it was while we were recording. I can't remember. We've been talking for over an hour. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's just so much that we've talked about. But um, so I have, a, I have a side project that I pick up and put down and pick up and put down, but um, and there I had to implement auth and I was like, this is not a strong suit. What can I do? And I was looking for tools. I landed on OAuth. Mm-hmm. Um, I landed on using that. But I'm curious to, to know, um, what does Fusion Auth do and what do they offer developers? Yeah. So real quick, take a step back. I think that unless you're wanting to like learn the fundamentals of authentication, you should not be writing your own off at this point. There's so many great options out there. There's open source options that you can embed into your application, right? Like if you use a Rails or a Django or a Spring or a .NET, um, there's libraries that you can just say, okay, I want to be able to have a username and password, and you can leverage the expertise of, of people who've built that before you. Uh, where it gets... There's also commercial offerings and where 
and and some of those are SaaS offerings where they live out in the cloud. And if you're building a web app, then they make a lot of sense. Uh, Fusion Auth is is relatively unique because it can be both self-hosted, so you can run it locally or on your own server, or you can pay us to run it for you in a SaaS offering. And uh, where I think the benefits of of something like Fusion Auth or one of our competitors you may have heard of is called Auth Zero, where they really shine is if you only have one application, you know you only have one application then doing it embedded in the application makes a lot of sense because it's a simpler deployment model. Uh, if there's changes, you can kind of keep them together um, because there may be changes like within the application that are reflected in the authentication plan or needs and vice versa. But once you start to have multiple applications, then just like you abstract your web server from an, a web application typically, right? Like you could store all the data within the within the application, but you're typically going to have an external relational database that you talk to or a NoSQL database, you can do the same thing with identity. And so you basically have your application, it sends you over to an identity server of, of which FusionAuth is one, and then it authenticates you and then you, it sends you back something that you can know, oh, that person got authenticated. And it's a it's the OAuth standard, as, as you mentioned. Um, so that's kind of where FusionAuth fits in and why you might want to integrate it into your application architecture. Yeah, great. And um, I, I couldn't agree more. Don't write your own authentication. But unless you want to learn how the salad's made, don't. <laughs> yeah, and it's totally legitimate to do that. Just don't ship it, right? Like if you want yeah, to write yeah. your own authentication, that's awesome. Like, yeah. It's, yeah, so. 100%. If you want to learn, like it's a great thing. Like there's people who write their own React. They won't use it but now you have a better understanding of how React works. <laughs> totally. There's a ton of benefits to using something that's been battle-tested, um, and especially when it comes to authentication. Wow, there's so many ways this can go wrong. So, you know, if you can use something like Fusion Auth, um, do, <laughs> do, do go for that option. The other thing I'll also say is if you're going with somebody um, and, they, and you're writing, let's say, for example, you're doing your authentication in Node, if they have a node package, use that. Just use that and let it talk to the API instead of trying to figure out the API for yourself. So unless that API is really well documented, you're probably going to shoot yourself in the foot a couple of times and it's going to be painful. So I learned that the hard way. Like I thought, no, I'll just read the API docs. I'm fine. No, I wasn't fine. <laughs> then, but then I just like, wait a minute. I have an NPM package. I'm going to install that. And it was like, it took me an hour and authentication worked. And I was like, oh my goodness. So yeah, <laughs> I can only recommend that. Well, Dan, this was amazing. I love the conversation. I love the work you do. And thanks for sharing about the stuff that Fusion does. Um, in closing, going back to um, letters to a new dev, um, you said that you're doing like a guest post and like mostly you're reaching out, but people can contact you and you have a page that says, what would you say? And um, I have something on that page that I had a look at. And one of the questions there that you kind of tell people, like ask yourself these questions before you contact me. And one of them is, what is the one piece of advice you wish you could share with new developers today? So that's my question to you. 
Yeah, I really appreciate that. Uh, and I appreciate how much work and effort you went into prepping for this. Uh, I, I really do. Um, the one piece of advice I would give to software devs and everyone listening to this is that you belong in the software world and we need you. We need, there's so much software written. There's so many different aspects and viewpoints and uh, skill sets that people need to bring this to the software world. And so don't listen to anyone who's gatekeeping. You belong and we need you. That's beautiful. And that's a lovely way to end it. Thanks so much, Dan, again for uh, spending an hour and 12 minutes almost of your time with me. I really appreciate that a lot um, and all of the very best. And I hope to see the letters of new dev on the web for a long time to come. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Mycelium Network Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have something to add? Continue the conversation on GitHub and join the community on Slack. Until the next one, keep making the web awesome.